Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> wow, you are listening to the AltaCast slash Some Call Me Tim. We don't know what anything is anymore. Uh, That was really fun to listen to Steve Poggi as the pirate doing all of the ads from all of the days. Uh, so yeah, Mutiny Radio is closing December 1st. New chapters opening. Mutiny Radio isn't going, well, Mutiny Radio is going somewhere. It's going to Greece to make films, <laughs> to make art films in Greece because I'm so scared. You know, and okay, yeah, it's better for my life. But also, man, if you've been listening to this show as long as we've been doing it, we used to bash Trump like a motherfucker. And he's going to be reelected, you guys, and it's scary. And I don't want to keep saying it because it keeps putting it into the gestalt. But Americans, man, we got some fucking problems. And and I do not think that they're going to be solved by capitalism. But maybe, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to you guys. Um, but... We will always keep up the archives. I will continue to pay to keep the Mutiny Radio archives in perpetuity because they're important. They're sonic references, and we'll keep up the website, and we'll keep up the podcasts, and we'll try to work with them in some meaningful way because, you know, over the past 10 years, a lot of water has been created to bring the horses to, and it just, I've never known how to bring horses to water. I know how to make water, which is kind of miraculous, like, Okay, I'm not saying I'm God or whatever, but if content metaphorically is water in this sense, we've made a, an enormous lake, an enormous lake. And, uh, you know, in the future, maybe the focus becomes getting people to find that content as opposed to continuing to create, or the c content that I will continue creating will be comedy for myself. Uh, and then also these films, man. Art films, like actual art films, like throwback to the 50s, even earlier, the start of film when it was like this burgeoning art and what that means. Ah, I've never, you know, it's the one art I haven't, I haven't really done yet. I've done the theater. Now I've done radio. And I've done the written form, right? Okay, so, and now film. But art, I mean, I ain't got a lot of years left on this planet. Who, who knows how many we all have? But I would like to create something meaningful or that at least the group that creates it, we all believe in its meaning. Like, hell yeah. I think that the problem with comedy is it's so insular to yourself. It's so narcissistic. And, it, and there is a freeing power in that, that you don't have to rely on anybody. But I think it's killed my soul a little bit. Like, I used to do theater where we would have you know, people would be involved for weeks before the play, hours and hours of rehearsal, 
dance rehearsal, learning, like, oh my God, so much crazy stuff. And at the end, get paid 50 bucks. And they'd be stoked on it because they would have done it for free. And it's like, what? Anyway, art for art's sake, despite the commercialism, I think I've got to, and that's where I've been for a while, you know, with the free speech stuff, but it's just too hard here. You have to be a capitalist, I think, in the United States. And um, I'm just a little socialist. <laughs> but I've sort of forgotten my socialist soul because I've been so, you know, comedy will really kill you. It's just, it's a lot of little people who have their own little worlds. And sometimes they get in a solar system, but there's still so much space between them. It's really wild. And then sometimes someone will be a planet with like rings and people will like ring around it or whatever, but then it's still part of this, oof, doing the metaphors today. Okay, speaking of metaphors, I'd like to play some Margaret Atwood um, in the interim. We're going to have a, a call by the Sheriff of Truth. Toy is calling in. We're going to talk about stuff. This week, I promise I won't like completely be a narcissist. I, But how can you... It's like, I just gotta, I, how do I be anything but me? <sighs> anyway, yay, live radio. So I hope that you are listening to mutinyradio.fm in whatever incarnation or time period this is. I mean, it could be 10 years in the future, but why would you do that? Um, all these artifacts exist um, on our website. And I promise when I move to Greece, I'm hanging out with tech guys that will be able to make it look spiffy and make it look cool. I just used the word spiffy, which ages me. Sassy, should I use that next? <laughs> okay. We're going to listen to Margaret Atwood because she's much better with words than I. And uh, we'll be back. In the deep mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. Every Saturday, or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine. And even in the drizzle, but not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. Nell took the Greyhound bus up to Stiles. It was already the afternoon. Tig and Una had decided that Nell shouldn't try to spend the entire weekend, not the first time, because it might be too much of a strain for the children. She waited in the station for Tig to pick her up, knitting away at her bedspread. She had only two more rows of squares to go. She'd already attached the finished rows together using a crochet hook, and the red and purple and blue checkerboard effect had come out just the way she'd pictured it. Tig was late, but this was nothing new. He was usually late collecting her. He had other errands to do in styles. He needed to get gas, go to the hardware store, buy groceries. Once she'd recognized that, she was fine about the lateness, more or less. They drove to the farm in the rusted-out Chevy. The boys were sliding around on the frozen pond. They didn't have skates on, but they had hockey sticks. They were shooting pucks. They waved their mittened hands as the car skewed its way up the drive. This time there was no embrace, no throwing off of garments, no hurried plunge under Tig's duvet. Instead, once they were inside the door, there was an awkward pause. They'll be happy out there for a while, said Tig. Maybe we should make some cocoa, said Nell. 
That was what you did with children. You made them cocoa. And popcorn, she added. Those were the foods that had been served up for her when she was a child, on cold winter afternoons such as this one, comforting foods, rich and sweet and warm. That's a good idea, said Tig. He smiled at her, pleased that she was making an effort. Luckily, there was some cocoa and also some popping corn. Nell busied herself mixing up the cocoa powder and the sugar. She measured the milk into a saucepan, then she turned on the stove and began jiggling the corn kernels in an iron pot. Den mother, she thought. Camp counselor. Sunday school teacher on an outing. Those were her choices, her disguises. Prissy ones, all of them, reeking of blue cotton blouses with badges on their sleeves. How would she greet the boys? Hello there, I'm your dad's mistress. But mistress, as a word, had gone out the window along with adultery. You couldn't have one without the other. The boys came in through the shed. She could hear them laughing, stamping the snow off their feet. Then they were in the main room. They looked at her shyly, with what might also have been distrust or apprehension, much the same way, Nell supposed, that she was looking at them. Then they shook her hand, each one in turn, Despite the thorniness and leechiness of the marriage that had been their habitat until now, they had been what used to be known as well brought up. They were taller than she remembered them, and older, but of course they would be. It was months, a lot of months, since she had last seen them. The three of them sat at the kitchen table drinking their cocoa and eating their popcorn and playing Monopoly, while Tig boiled up spaghetti for dinner. The game did not have the spontaneity of their first game together. The moves were more cautious, more guarded. The boys hoarded their Monopoly money as if for some future emergency. There wasn't the same reckless acquisition of property, the same gambling and risk-taking. Possibly they were remembering their first game with Nell, back when both parents were still under the same roof, pretending that all was well. Now it was the boys who had to pretend that all was well. Tig was pretending, too. He was overly jolly, vibrating with anxiety. He so much wanted everything to go smoothly. Nell played as sloppily as she could and made numerous loans, but she won the game anyway, despite her best efforts. She couldn't bring herself to cheat. In the months to come, she and the boys, and sometimes even Tig, would play many more such games. Nell tried to substitute hearts or group solitaire, but the boys demanded monopoly. Nell felt sorry for them. Each boy wanted to win just once, but they had bad luck, and it could not somehow be managed. While they were eating their spaghetti, Una phoned. After a few exchanges with Tig and a conversation with each of the boys, she asked to speak with Nell. Nell came to the phone reluctantly. It was a wall phone right in the kitchen. Tig and the boys went still. They couldn't help listening. Una's voice had the confiding, though authoritative tone Nell remembered. You will make sure they do their homework, won't you? She said. Tig lets them play around too much. They're getting behind at school. So that's who I'm supposed to be, thought Nell. 
I'm the governess. At the end of March, when the snow was mostly gone except in the shadows and the buds were swelling, Nell finished her bedspread and arranged it on the single bed in her study. She was pleased with the way it had turned out. She called Tig in to admire it. Does this mean you're here to stay? asked Tig, folding his long arms around her from behind. Nell didn't say anything, but she smiled. He wasn't so obtuse after all. In April, the boys brought up one of their cats because a farm needed a cat. They'd seen some mice or possibly rats in the barn. The cat was a city cat. Not being used to travel, it growled and threw up in the car, and when they'd reached the farm, it leapt out before anyone could grab it and ran off into the bushes and wasn't seen for days. When it came back, it was thinner and had burrs stuck all over its fur. It scooted under the bed in Nell's study and wouldn't come out. Evidently, however, it must have emerged at night and rolled around on Nell's knitted bedspread, to which it transferred most of the burrs. Nell picked away at them, but she could never get out all the little hooks and prickles. Moral Disorder There's never been such a lovely spring, Nell thought. Frogs, or were they toads, trilled from the pond, and there were pussy willows and catkins. What was the difference? And then the hawthorn bushes and the wild plums and the neglected apple trees came into bloom, and an uneven row of daffodils planted by some long-vanished farmer's wife thrust up through the weeds and dead grasses beside the drive. Birds sang, mud dried. In the evenings, Nell and Tig sat outside their rented farmhouse on two aluminum-framed lawn chairs they'd found in the back shed, holding hands, slapping away the occasional mosquito, and watching a barred owl teach her two young to hunt. For practice, they were using the twelve ducklings Tig had bought and installed on the pond. He'd made a shelter for the ducklings, like a little house without walls set on a floating raft. They could have gone in under the roof and been safe, but they didn't seem to know enough to do that. The owl swooped down in silence, down over the surface of the pond where the ducklings ignorantly paddled, snatching a duckling a night, carrying each one up to the cavity in the dead tree where she had her nest, then rending the duckling apart and sharing it out to the young to be gobbled down until all twelve ducklings were gone. Look at that, said Tig. Such grace. At the beginning of May, the businessman who owned the farm said he was selling it. He gave them a month to move out. Since there wasn't any lease, they had to go. But they couldn't move back to the city. They were agreed on that. It was just too beautiful up here. They drove a half hour farther north, where the prices would be cheaper, and scouted around on back roads, searching out the for sale signs. Up near Garrett, they managed to find something in their price range. A house, a barn, and a hundred acres. It had been on the market for more than a year. Vacant possession, said the owner, who was showing them around himself. He lived on another farm. He'd been using this barn to store hay, but now he was selling both properties, cashing in. 
I want to see a bit of the world before it's time for me to be putting on the wooden overcoat, he said. There was a pond on this farm as well, and a number of gnarled apple trees set around the house, and a drive shed with an old tractor in it. That came with, said the owner. The house was white-clabbered, built in the mid-1830s, with a cement-floored addition on the back, a summer kitchen. The cellar was unfinished. Its beams were trees with some of the bark still on them. The steps down to it were steep and hazardous. The dirt floor was damp and had a hard-to-place odor. Not dry rot, not dead mouse, not sewage exactly. It needs a lot of work, said Nell. The farmer cheerfully admitted it and knocked $5,000 off the price. Then there was the matter of the mortgage, said Tig. They were iffy propositions for a bank, since neither of them had a permanent full-time job. But the owner said he would give them a mortgage himself. He's in a hurry to get rid of this place, said Nell. They were standing in the middle of the kitchen floor, which sloped steeply down toward the center wall. They'd have to jack the floor up from underneath and run in a new crossbeam sooner or later. The wallpaper, one of many layers, as could be seen by the torn parts, was a faded green with bulbous pinkish-brown flowers on it. The floor was linoleum-covered in a pattern of maroon and orange oblongs Nell recognized from the fifties. There's a hundred acres, said Tig. The house is kind of dark, said Nell. It's not very cheerful. We'll clean the windows, said Tig. No one had lived in here for years. Dust and dead flies coated the window sills. We'll paint the wallpaper white. He'd been out with the farmer, walking over the land. He'd seen a marsh hawk in the back field. He treated it like an omen. Nell didn't say it wasn't the windows, not the wallpaper. But paint would help. They scraped together the down payment using Nell's savings and a sum from a television documentary Tig had recently put together. The weekend after they'd closed the deal, they moved their bed in. Then they sat on the linoleum floor, eating sardines out of the tin and slices of brown bread and hunks of cheese and drinking red wine. There was only a single glaring overhead light bulb dangling from a wire, so they turned it off and lit a candle instead. It was like an indoor picnic. So it's all ours, said Tig. I've never owned any real estate before, said Nell. Neither have I, said Tig. It's a bit scary, said Nell. We'll go out and see the hawk tomorrow. Nell kissed Tig. It wasn't the best idea because of the sardines, but they'd both been eating them. Let's go to bed, said Tig. I need to brush my teeth, said Nell. They lay on Tig's mattress, their mattress, with their arms around each other. They'd carried the candle upstairs. It flickered in the warm breeze that came in through the open bedroom window. Nell thought about filmy white curtains. She'd always wanted those when she was young. And about how such curtains would ripple in such a breeze once they had some. You shouldn't have said I'm your wife, said Nell after a while, at the lawyer's. A lot of women are keeping their own names now, said Tig. But it's not true. Una's your wife. 
you're still married to her. Not really, said Tig. Anyway, you put spouse instead of wife. It's a dead giveaway. Didn't you catch the way he was looking at me, that lawyer? What way? Just that way. What would you like to be called, said Tig. Now he sounded hurt. Nell said nothing. She was spoiling things. She didn't want to. She'd been put in a false position, and she hated that. But she had no other word to suggest, no word for herself that would be both truthful and acceptable. Over the next few days, they moved in the rest of their possessions, the bunk beds for Tig's two children, the ones they slept on when they came to visit, the single bed for the guest room, Nell's desk, a few chairs, some bookcases and books, Nell's orange table. She'd left the rest of her furniture behind in the city. They'd have to get some other furniture eventually. The house looked quite empty, but they didn't have the spare cash for it at the moment. Tig's two boys came up the next weekend and slept in their bunk beds in their new room and went for a long walk with Tig all around the property. They saw the marsh hawk, two marsh hawks. They must be a pair, said Tig. They'd been hunting for mice. The boys were pleased with the tractor in the barn. You didn't need a license to drive a tractor, not if you didn't go out onto the road. Tig said that when he'd got the tractor in running order, or when someone had, the boys could drive it around the fields. Nell didn't go on the walk. She stayed in the house and made biscuits. There was an old electric range that worked perfectly well except for one burner. They were going to get a wood stove, too. That was the plan. When Tig and the boys got back, they all ate the biscuits with honey on them and drank tea with hot milk in it. They sat casually around Nell's orange table with their elbows on it, just like a family. I'm the only person here who isn't related to anyone, thought Nell. She was feeling cut off. She didn't get into the city very often anymore, and when she did, it was on business. She met with publishers and with the authors whose books she was editing, so she didn't see her friends very much, in addition to which her parents weren't speaking to her as such, though they weren't not speaking to her either. Conversationally, she'd been put into a gray zone, a lot like a bus station waiting room. Cold air, silences, topics limited to states of health and the weather. Her parents hadn't got used to the fact that Nell had actually moved in with a man who was still married to someone else. She'd never been so blatant in her former life, She'd given some thought to appearances. She'd been sneakier. But now that her change of address cards had so flagrantly been sent, there was no comfort room left for sneakiness. Nell threw her energies into a kitchen garden. There were groundhogs in the fields, so she began with a fence. Tig helped with it. They set the bottom edge of the chicken wire a foot into the earth so the groundhogs couldn't tunnel under. Then Nell dug in a lot of the well-rotted cow manure from the heap she'd found in the barn. There was enough of it to last for years. Beside the front door, there was a knobbly, straggly rose. She pruned it back. She pruned some of the apple trees, too. She'd taken a new interest in sharp implements, 
shears and clippers, picks and shovels, pruning saws and pitchforks. Not axes. She didn't think she could handle an axe. By this time, she'd read up on the local pioneers, the people who'd arrived in the area in the early 19th century and had cleared the land, chopping down the trees, burning their trunks and branches, arranging their gigantic roots into the stump fences that were still to be seen here and there, slowly decaying. Many of these people had never used an axe before they'd come. Some of them had chopped off their legs. Others had stood in buckets while using their axes in order to avoid that fate. The soil of the garden was good enough, though there were a lot of stones, also shards from broken crockery and medicine bottles of pressed glass, white and blue and brown. A doll's arm, a tarnished silver spoon, animal bones, a marble. Layer upon layer of lives lived out. For someone once, this farm had been new. There must have been struggles, misgivings, failures, and despair. And deaths, naturally. Deaths of various kinds. While Nell worked in the garden, Tig went out and about. He drove up and down the side roads, exploring. He went into Garrett and tried out the hardware store and set up an account at the bank. The in-town grocery store, not to be confused with the boxy new supermarket on the outskirts, had a sign in the window for eggs, boneless hen fruit. On his return from these excursions, he'd tell Nell about such discoveries and bring her gifts, a trowel, a ball of twine, a roll of plastic mulch. There was a combination gas station and general store at the nearest crossroads, Tig began to drink coffee there with the local farmers, the older ones. They viewed him as an oddity, he said. They hadn't tossed him into the bin of contempt to which they consigned most people from the city. He drove a rusty car and didn't wear a tie and knew what a ratchet set was, all to the good. But he wasn't a farmer either. Nonetheless, they let him sit in on the coffee sessions where he picked up farming hints and gossip. They even began teasing him a bit, a development he reported to Nell with some glee. Nell didn't go along on these jaunts. She wasn't invited. The rule for the farmer's coffee group was men only. This was not stated. It was a given. I asked them what sort of animals we should have, Tig said one day after coming back from the store at the crossroads. And, said Nell, they said none. That sounds like a good idea, said Nell. Then one guy said, if you're going to have livestock, you're going to have dead stock. That's probably true, said Nell. After several days, Tig said that if they were going to live on a farm, they ought not to let the land go to waste, and that would mean having some animals. Also, it would be added value for the boys to learn where food really came from. They could start with chickens. Chickens were easy, said the farmers. Tig and the boys built a somewhat lopsided chicken house so the chickens could be protected from predators at night. They also made a fenced-in yard where the chickens could run around safely. Tig and Nell and anyone else who was there would be able to eat the eggs, said Tig, and then they could eat the chickens themselves once they got too old to lay eggs. 
Nell wondered who was going to kill the elderly chickens when the time came. She did not think it would be her. The chickens arrived in burlap sacks. They adjusted to their new surroundings immediately, or they appeared to. They didn't have a wide range of facial expressions. The farmer who'd supplied them had thrown in a rooster. He said the hens would be more contented that way, said Tig. The rooster crowed every morning, an ancient biblical sound. The rest of the time he stalked the hens while they were scratching in the dirt and pounced on them from behind and stomped up and down on them. If Nell or the boys got too close to the hens when they went into the yard to collect the eggs, the rooster would jump on their bare legs and rake them with his spurs. They took to carrying sticks to hit the rooster with. Nell made the chicken's eggs into pound cake, which she froze in the freezer they'd found themselves buying, because where were they going to keep all the stuff that would be produced by the kitchen garden once it really got going? Then Tig got some ducks, not ducklings this time, which were allowed to fend for themselves in the pond, and then two geese, which were supposed to lay eggs and produce goslings, but one of the geese injured its leg, so it had to be taken up the road to Mrs. Roblin. Tig and the boys and the Roblins were now friends, though Nell suspected the Roblins, the senior Roblins who ran a dairy operation, and the junior Roblins too, of which there were many, laughed at them behind their backs. The Roblins had been on their farm for a long time and knew what to do about all farm emergencies. The nearby cemetery had a lot of Roblins in it. Mrs. Roblin was a square-shaped, round-faced old woman, Nell thought she was old, with short but surprisingly strong arms and red, deft, stubby fingers that, Nell suspected, had never seen the inside of a rubber glove. The boy said she pitched in when necessary, and Nell understood that this pitching had nothing to do with baseball and everything to do with manure. Mrs. Roblin was clearly capable of any kind of enterprise involving guck and muck and blood and innards. The boys had seen her reach up into a cow and pull a calf out, legs first, a sight that had filled them with awe. While telling this, the boys would look at Nell, not critically, but dismissively. There was no way Nell would ever find herself up to the elbows in a cow's vagina, said that look. Nell had hoped Mrs. Roblin would set the goose's leg and put a splint on it, but that wasn't what happened. The goose came back in oven-ready form, which, said Tig, was the way things were done in the country. The remaining goose, or was it a gander, wandered around for a while looking sad, thought Nell, and then flew away. By this time there were also two peacocks, a pair Tig had found at a peacock farm on one of the back roads and had given to Nell as a present. Peacocks, Nell said. Tig was intending to please her. He always did intend it. How could she not appreciate his enthusiasm, his spontaneity? What about the winter, she said. Won't they die? Peacocks are a northern Himalayan pheasant, Tig said. They'll take care of themselves. They'll be fine in the cold. The peacocks were always together. The peacock would display, unfurling his huge tail and rattling it, and the peahen would admire him. 
They flew around easily and sat in trees and pecked about here and there. Sometimes they flew into the hen yard. The rooster knew better than to get into a fight with the peacock, which was a lot bigger than him. At night, the peacock couple roosted on the crossbeam of the barn, where they must have thought they were out of danger. They screamed like babies being murdered, usually just before dawn. Nell wondered where they would make their nest. How many baby peacocks would they produce? In the garden, Nell planted everything she could think of, tomatoes, peas, spinach, carrots, turnips, beets, winter and summer squash, cucumbers, zucchinis, onions, potatoes. She wanted generosity, abundance, an overflowing of fecundity, as in Renaissance paintings of fruitful goddesses, Demeter, Pomona, in flowing robes with one breast bare and glowing edibles tumbling out of their baskets. She put in a herb garden with chives and parsley and rosemary and oregano and thyme and three rhubarb plants and some currant bushes, a red and a white, and some elderberry bushes so they could make elderflower wine in the spring, bring, and a bed of strawberries. She planted runner beans that were supposed to grow up tripods made of poles. The local farmers did not recognize this bean method. On their regular sightseeing forays into the yard, there was always an excuse, a stray dog, the loan of a wrench or hammer. But really, they just wanted to see what Tig and Nell were up to. They looked hard at the structures of bare poles. They didn't ask what these were. When the beans started creeping into view, they stopped looking. Here your cows went on a spree again, they would say. They had a way of staring at Nell sideways. They couldn't figure her out. Were she and Tig married or what? The way they half grinned at her said they didn't think so. Maybe she was a free lover, some sort of hippie. That would fit in with her busting her ass in the garden. Real farm wives didn't have gardens, they loaded their pickups with groceries once a week from the supermarket in Garrett, 20 miles to the east. Here it took three days to get them cows back in the barn. Maybe you should take them to Anderson's. Nell knew what Anderson's was. It was the abattoir. Anderson's custom slaughtering. Oh, I don't think so, said Nell. Not yet. They had the cows because Tig had decided they should raise their own beef. The coffee-drinking farmers all did. Raise four, sell three, put one in the freezer, you're all set, was their pronouncement. So Tig purchased four Charolais-Hereford crosses on credit from one of these helpful farmers who didn't tell any actual lies, but it would have been better for Nell and Tig if they'd asked a few informed questions. They didn't know that the cows would be able to jump, and jump so high. The fences had to be raised and strengthened, but sometimes the cows got out anyway and ran off to join a large herd of other cows nearby. Tig had to take the two boys to get them back, throw some ropes on them, wrestle them into the truck they'd borrow for the purpose. That was dangerous, because the cows were skittish and never wanted to come home. Maybe they know we're going to eat them, said Nell. Cows want to be with other cows, said Tig. They're like shoppers. The cows' names were Susan, Velma, Megan, and Ruby. The boys had named them. They were warned about doing that, humanizing the cows, but they did it anyway.
Una always telephoned on the weekends. At first, she'd wanted to speak to Nell as well as to Tig and the boys. She wanted to enlist Nell's help and issue instructions. But after a while, she'd stopped doing that. Once in a while, curt messages were relayed to Nell from Una via folded and sealed notes delivered by the boys. Usually, they concerned missing socks. One of the hens escaped from the yard and was found among the rhubarb plants with her throat slit. Weasel, said Mrs. Roblin, having inspected the wound. They drink the blood. She asked if Nell wanted to take the hen home and stew it, as it was still fresh and the blood had been let out. Nell did not. The victim of a weasel murder was surely tainted, so Mrs. Roblin kept the hen, saying she could think of a use for it. Another hen set up shop behind a jumble of machinery parts in the drive shed where she hoarded eggs, her own, and those of other hens avoiding their brooding duties. By the time Nell found her, she was sitting on twenty-five eggs. What could be done? The eggs were too old, too well-developed, too full of embryos to be eaten. The boys were going to spend the rest of the summer at the farm, said Tig, a last-minute arrangement, because Una was going on vacation. She was heading for a Caribbean resort, not alone. Do you mind? Tig said, and Nell said, of course not, though it would have been nice to have been told ahead of time. Tig said there hadn't been any ahead of time. Nell stuck a list onto the refrigerator with a magnet. It was a list of cleaning duties, sweeping, clearing the table, washing the dishes, they would all take turns. She herself would continue to do all the laundry in the temperamental second-hand ringer machine they'd found. She'd continue to hang it on the line. She was already baking the bread and the pies and making the ice cream with some of the extra eggs and the cream they were getting up at Roblin's. Also, there were the currants to be considered. She couldn't make every single currant into jelly. She tried to dry some of them in the sun, but then she'd forgotten about them and it had rained. Despite the various lists she'd been making, she couldn't keep track of everything. There were numerous auctions that season. Farmers died or sold up, and then everything in the house and barn would be put on the block. Nell felt like a scavenger. Still, she went. She got a couple of quilts that way. They needed only a little mending, and a wooden chest with missing hinges, but those would be easily fixed once she got around to it. She wanted things that would add up to a look, a farm look, more or less olden days. Tig bought a baler, dirt cheap because it was an out-of-date kind. It produced small oblong bales, not the outsized cinnamon buns of hay that were the fashion now. He and the boys would take off the hay, he said. They could feed it to the cows in the winter and sell the excess hay at a dollar a bale. He'd pay the boys, of course, whatever you'd pay an unskilled laborer. Tig and Nell would lose money on this venture or break even at best, said Tig, but it would be a terrific experience for the boys who would be able to do some real work and feel useful. What did Nell think of that? I think it's fine, said Nell, this had become her standard answer when it was a question of Tig's enthusiasms. While Nell and Tig were going to farm sales, 
The boys spent time in the barn. They got up to lots of things in there. Alcohol was consumed, psychedelic substances tested, cigarettes and dope smoked regularly. The dope came from local back fields, where some of the younger farmers were growing lucrative, though illegal, crops of what they called wacky tobacco. Inside the barn, plots were hatched. Making off with the car was considered running away to Montreal, or at least to Garrett, to see horror movies. These plots remained theoretical, and the boys did not shout or smash things, unlike some Nell had heard of. So Tig and Nell had no idea. They found all this out much later, once the boys had grown up and had passed through their twenties and their anger at Tig for having left home, and had begun to share their reminiscences. The boys weren't getting on too well at school. Una had forwarded their report cards, implying that this lack of progress was Tig's fault. But Tig, who had the tractor working now, who let the boys drive it around the farmyard and out to the back field, said they were learning so many other things, things that would come in handy for them in their later lives. The boys were taller now, taller than Nell. One of them was almost as tall as Tig. They had tans and biceps. They ate huge meals, and when Tig didn't have them working at something else, they were under the tractor, unscrewing parts of it and screwing them on again. They got covered with grease and oil and dirt and sometimes blood from various tool-inflicted wounds, which seemed to make them quite happy. Nell washed a lot of towels. When the weather was right, hot and sunny, and the hay had been cut and raked into rows, Tig and the boys labored at the bailing, wearing thick gloves and bandanas twisted around their foreheads to keep the sweat from running into their eyes. The baler got dragged around the fields by the tractor, spewing out bales and chunks of dried mud and pieces of twine. The process was hot and dusty and very noisy. Straw made its way into their clothes. Fragments of it went up their noses. Getting the bales into the barn was the worst part. Nell helped sometimes, wearing a bandana and a big-brimmed hat. In the evenings, they were all so tired they could barely eat. They fell into bed before sunset. At the end of August, Tig received a typed letter from Una, accusing him and Nell of exploiting the boys as child labor in order to make a profit from them. Tig and Una were supposed to be drawing up a separation agreement so they could get a divorce, but Una kept changing lawyers. She thought that because Tig and Nell owned a farm, Tig must be lying to her about his income. She wanted more money. But Tig didn't have any more. Nell sensed that she was growing a hard shell all around herself. It kept her from feeling as sorry for Tig as she ought to. Tig's view was that he couldn't get into any sort of open conflict with Una. He could not, for instance, initiate a divorce. Una must be allowed to believe that she was the one in control. If Tig did anything sudden, if he made the first move, Una would use it against him with the children. After all, they lived with her officially, not with him. They spend more time with us, Nell said, if you count waking hours, and she'll use it against you anyway. She already is. She isn't well, Tig said. There's something wrong with her health. 
he said that nothing must be done to disturb Una unduly. I disturb her unduly anyway, thought Nell. I can't help it. There was more to this conversation, but it wasn't voiced. I'm almost thirty-four, thought Nell. When will things be untangled? But Tig was in no hurry. The wild plums in the hedgerows ripened and fell. They were blue, ovoid, fragrant. Nell gathered them up by the basketful and carried them home in a swirl of tiny fruit flies and made them into compotes and rich purple jam. Tig licked her purple fingers, kissed her purple lips. They made love slowly in the warm, hazy evenings. Replete, thought Nell. That's the word. Why would I want anything to change ever? In September, Nell picked the less wormy and scabby apples from the apple trees and made them into apple jelly. The ground under the trees was littered with fallen and fermenting apples. Butterflies lit on them and drank, then staggered around unevenly. Wasps did the same. One morning, Tig and Nell woke up to find a herd of drunken pigs lying under the trees, grunting and snoring in contentment. Evidently, they'd been on a binge. Tig chased them off, then followed them to see where they'd come from. They were from the pig farm up the hill in back. They did this every year, said the pig farmer. They'd break out of their pen just as if they'd been planning it for months and dig their way under the fence. They always picked the right time. It cheered them up to have this one orgy to look forward to, was his view. Never mind that the apple trees weren't his. Nell knew they couldn't say anything. A boundary was a boundary only if you could defend it. People's houses got broken into around here. Theft took place, vandalism. She didn't always feel safe when Tig wasn't there. Susan the cow went away in a truck one day and came back frozen and dismembered. It was like a magic trick. A woman sawed in half on the stage in plain view of all, to reappear fully restored to wholeness, walking down the aisle. Except that Susan's transformation had gone the other way. Nell didn't want to think about what had happened to Susan during her period of invisibility. Is this Susan we're eating? said the boys, shoveling down the pot roast. You shouldn't have named the cows, said Nell. The boys grinned. They'd discovered the value of shock and horror, at least at the dinner table. Nell was overrun with vegetables. She didn't know what to do with them. Some could be canned, others dried and frozen. Yet others, such as the mound of surplus zucchinis, fed to the chickens. Nell put up a dozen jars of cucumber pickles, a dozen jars of pickled beets. She stored the potatoes and carrots and onions in the root cellar, where they joined the bottles of homemade beer Tig had brewed and the crock of fermenting sauerkraut from Nell's excess cabbages. Putting the sauerkraut in the cellar was a mistake. It filled the whole house with a strong odor of dirty feet. But Nell comforted herself with the thought that it was high in vitamin C and would be useful if they were snowed in all winter and began to get scurvy. In the second week of October, Tig and Nell beheaded their first hen. Tig did it with the axe, looking a little pale. 
The hen ran around the yard, spouting blood from its neck like a fountain. The cows became agitated and mooed. The remaining hens cackled. The peacocks screamed. Nell had to consult Mrs. Roblin as to what to do next. She scalded the hen and plucked it as per instructions. Then she took out the insides. She had never smelled anything so nauseating. There were a number of eggs of various sizes in various stages of development. That's it, she thought. I'm not doing this again. Those chickens will die of old age as far as I'm concerned. Tig made the chicken into a stew with carrots and onions from the garden. The boys ate it with relish. They wished they'd been there to see the hen running around without a head. Tig had recovered from his pale moment and was reveling in the joys of description. In late October, three ewes were added to the cows in the farmyard. Tig's idea was that they would produce lambs, which could then be sold or eaten. The ewes waded into the pond for some unknown reason and got their legs tangled in a roll of barbed wire that was lurking under the surface, and Tig had to cut them free with wire cutters and carry them out. Their fleece was sopping wet and they were very heavy. They struggled and kicked, and Tig slipped and went sideways into the pond, and after that he got a cold. Nell rubbed Vic's vapor-rub on him and made him hot lemon with whiskey in it. In November, Tig's bottles of homemade beer began to explode down in the cellar. There would be a bang, then beer and broken glass all over the floor, like a Saturday night car crash. Nell never knew when one of the bottles was about to go off. Venturing into the cellar to get a carrot or a potato was like running a minefield. But the beer in the bottle still intact was excellent, said Tig, though very effervescent. He had to drink those bottles in quick succession so they wouldn't be wasted. Winter came. The driveway drifted over. The car had to be left at the bottom of the hill where the big snowplow coming by regularly buried it. Then there was a sleet storm, and the telephone wires came down, and the electricity went off. Luckily, the wood stove had been set up by then. Nell and Tig huddled beside it, wrapped in quilts, burning a flock of candles to keep the darkness at bay. On other days, days without blizzards or high winds or freezing rain, the fields were dazzlingly white and pure, the air crisp. Tig loved feeding the animals on such days. He found it peaceful. They'd gather around him in the morning while he opened a fresh bale of hay, their fragrant breath steaming in the cold, jostling one another only slightly, looking in the wintry scene like the corner of a nativity tableau. Nell gazed out the window at the tranquil grouping, feeling she was back in a simpler time. But then the phone would ring. She'd hesitate before answering. It might be Una. In February, with the snow whipping across the icy fields, the ewes lambed. One of them had triplets and rejected the smallest of her three lambs. Tig found it shivering and trembling in a corner of the stall. Tig and Nell took the disowned lamb inside the house and wrapped it in a towel and put it into the wicker laundry basket and wondered what to do next. Unfortunately, one of the lambs left with the ewe stuck its head between two boards in the stall and froze to death. So in theory, the third runty lamb could have replaced it. 
but the mother would have nothing to do with the desolate little creature. It must smell wrong to her, said Nell. It's been with us. Mrs. Roblin told them to put the wrapped-up lamb inside the oven with the door open and the heat on low and feed it brandy with an eyedropper, so that is what they did. She came over in person to make sure they were doing it right. She treated Nell and Tig as if they were slightly dim-witted children, a few bricks short of a load, as the local farmers were in the habit of saying. The lamb was bleating feebly and kicking a little. Mrs. Roblin looked into its eyes and then its mouth and said it would most likely make it through. Nell wanted to know how she could tell, but felt it would be stupid to ask. Day by day, the lamb grew stronger. Nell cradled it in her arms while feeding it. She was embarrassed to find herself rocking it and singing to it. What's its name? said the boys. It doesn't have a name, said Nell. She wasn't going to fall into the trap of naming it. Soon the lamb was standing up, drinking milk from a baby bottle. Tig made it a stall in the summer kitchen, where it was given fresh straw bedding every day. But as it became friskier and wanted to run and leap, they decided it was a shame to keep it cooped up, so they let it into the house. On the slippery linoleum, the new slippery linoleum they'd laid down with a pattern in the shape of tiles, its four legs splayed out and it had trouble keeping its balance. But soon it had mastered the art and was bouncing here and there, twirling its long woolly tail. It couldn't be toilet trained, however. It peed whenever it felt the urge and left piles of shiny brown raisin-sized pellets on the linoleum. Nell made it a diaper out of a green plastic garbage bag, cutting holes for the back legs and the tail, but that was worse than useless. At the end of March, the peahen was found dead on the floor of the barn underneath its crossbeam perch. A weasel must have gone up there during the night, said Mrs. Roblin. Weasels would do that. The peacock was hanging around the crumpled body, looking confused. What will become of him now, thought Nell. He's all alone. By April, the lamb was too big to be kept in the house. He was becoming too strong, too boisterous. They put him into the barnyard with the cows and sheep, but he didn't make friends with the other lambs. He kept to himself, except when Tig went into the yard to feed the animals. Then, when Tig's back was turned the lamb would take a run at him and slam into him from behind. It was a different story with Nell. When she appeared, the lamb would come over to her and nuzzle against her. Then he'd stand between her and Tig. Tig had to take a length of two-by-four into the barnyard to defend himself. When the lamb came running at him, he'd wang it on the forehead. The lamb would shake its head and back off, but soon enough he would try again. He thinks it's a contest, said Nell. He's in love with you, said Tig. I'm glad somebody is, said Nell. What's that supposed to mean, said Tig, aggrieved. Nell didn't know what it was supposed to mean. She hadn't intended to say it. It had just come out of her mouth. She felt her lip trembling. This is ridiculous, she thought. After the murder of his wife, the peacock started behaving strangely. He displayed to the hens in their yard 
fanning out his tail, rattling the feathers. When the hens showed no interest in him, he leapt on them and pecked them. He had a powerful neck and packed a hard wallop. He killed several hens. Tig shut the hens up in their house and tried to catch the peacock, but he flew away out of reach and screamed. Then he went after the ducks, but they had the sense to skitter down into the pond where he couldn't get at them. Then he caught sight of his own reflection in one of the house windows, a window with a mound of earth near it on which he could stand. He displayed to himself, fanning and rattling his tail feathers and screaming in threat, and then attacked the window. He's gone mad, said Tig. He's in a state of grief, said Nell. It must be mating season, said Tig. The peacock took to lurking around outside the house, peering in through the ground floor windows like a crazed voyeur. He knew his enemy was in there. Hate had replaced love in his tiny, demented head. He was bent on assassination. We should find him another mate, said Nell. But they didn't get around to it, and then one day he was gone. The lamb was growing bigger and bigger and more and more fearless. He no longer waited until Tig's back was turned. He'd now charge at him from any angle. His skull seemed made of cement. Hitting him with a two-by-four merely encouraged him. We can't let him go on like this, said Tig. He's going to injure someone. He thinks he's a human being, said Nell. He thinks he's a man. He's just guarding his territory. All the more reason, said Tig. There was a farmer nearby, said the guys at the store, who'd been drinking one night and had tried to cross a field where a billy goat was pastured. The goat ran at him and knocked him down. Every time the poor sod tried to get up, the goat knocked him down again. By sunrise, the poor bastard was almost dead. The lamb would soon be a full-grown ram. Then he might pull something like that. So what are we going to do, said Nell. They both knew what, but Tig wasn't up to chopping the head off the lamb and then dismembering it or whatever had to be done. He wasn't up to butchery. Hands were as far as he would go. We'll have to take him to Anderson's, he said. They managed to catch the lamb. Nell had to lure him over to where Tig waited stock still with a rope because the lamb trusted her and didn't see her as a rival. Once they'd wrestled him down to the ground, they tied his legs together and carted him out of the barnyard. The other sheep and the cows looked over the fence, mooing and bawing. They all knew something was up. Tig and Nell lifted the lamb into the trunk of the Chevy. He kicked and struggled and bleated piteously. Then they got into the car themselves and drove away. Nell felt as if they were kidnapping the lamb, tearing him away from home and family, holding him for ransom, except that there wouldn't be any ransom. He was doomed for no crime except the crime of being himself. His muffled bleats did not stop, all the way to Anderson's custom slaughtering. What next, said Nell. She felt exhausted. Treachery is hard work, she thought. We get him out of the car, said Tig. We take him into the building. Do we have to wait, said Nell. While it's happening, she meant, while it's being done. 
the way you'd wait at a child's first visit to the dentist. Wait where? There was no place to wait. Anderson's was a long, low building that had once been white. The double doors were open. From inside came a dim light. Stacks of barrels stood around outside in the yard, and crates, and a closed van, a horse van, and some rusted machinery parts, a sort of pulley. The barrels and crates also looked rusted, but they couldn't be rusted because they were made of wood. There was nobody around. Maybe they should honk the horn to announce their presence, Nell thought. That way they wouldn't have to go in. Tig was at the back of the car, trying to get the trunk open. It's jammed or something, he said. Or maybe it's locked. From inside the trunk, the lamb bleated. I'll go in, said Nell. There must be someone. The doors are open. They'll have a crowbar. Or something, she thought. They'll have all kinds of things. Bludgeons, sharp-edged tools, knives for the throat slitting. She went into the building. A row of naked light bulbs hung from the ceiling. Beside the door were two more barrels, the tops off. She looked in. They were filled with skinned cow's heads in brine. She assumed it was brine. There was a sweet, heavy, clotted smell, a menstrual smell. The cement floor was strewn with sawdust. At least the weather is cool, she thought. At least there aren't a lot of flies. Farther on was a sort of corral and some high-sided pens or cubicles. Hello, she called. Anybody here? As if she'd come to borrow a cup of sugar. From around the corner of one of the pens came a tall, heavy man. On top, he was wearing nothing but an undershirt. His thick arms were bare. As in some old comic book about torturers in the Middle Ages, he was bald. He had an apron on, or maybe it was just a piece of gray canvas tied around his middle. There were brown smears on it that must have been blood. In one hand, he was holding an implement of some kind. Nell did not look closely at it. Help you, he said. Our lamb is stuck in the trunk, she said, of our car. It's jammed shut. We thought maybe you had a crowbar or something. Her voice sounded tinny and frivolous. Won't be hard, said the man. He strode forward. On the way back to the farm, Nell began to cry. She couldn't stop. She cried and cried without restraint, in gasps and sobs. Tig pulled over to the side of the road and stopped the car and took her in his arms. I feel sad too, he said. The poor little fellow. But what else could we do? It isn't just the lamb, said Nell, hiccuping, wiping her nose. What is it then? What? It's everything, said Nell. You didn't see what was in there. Everything's gone wrong. No, it hasn't, said Tig, hugging her tightly. It's all right. I love you. It'll be fine. It won't, it won't, said Nell. She began to cry again. Tell me what it is. I can't. Just tell me. You don't want me to have any babies, said Nell. 
The lamb came back in a white oblong cardboard box, like a dress box. Neatly arranged in wax paper were the tender pink chops, the two legs, the shanks and neck for stewing. There were two little kidneys and a delicate heart. Tig cooked the lamb chops with dried rosemary from Nell's garden. Despite her sorrow, for she still felt sorrow, Nell had to admit they were delicious. I am a cannibal, she thought with odd detachment. Maybe she would grow cunning up here on the farm. Maybe she would absorb some of the darkness, which might not be darkness at all, but only knowledge. She would turn into a woman others came to for advice. She would be called in emergencies. She would roll up her sleeves and dispense with sentimentality and do whatever blood-soaked, bad-smelling thing had to be done. She would become adept with axes. White Horse In their second year at the farm, Nell and Tig acquired a white horse. They didn't buy this horse or even seek her out, but suddenly there she was. In those days, they picked up animals the way they picked up burrs. Creatures adhered to them. In addition to the sheep, cows, chickens, and ducks, they'd gathered in a dog they called Howl, a blue tick hound, possibly even a thoroughbred. He'd been wearing an expensive collar, though no name tag. He'd wandered in off the side road, dumped there by whoever had mistreated him so badly that he rolled over on his back and peed if anyone spoke a harsh word to him. There was no point in trying to train him, said Tig. He was too easily frightened. Howell slept in the kitchen sometimes, where he barked in the middle of the night for no reason. At other times, he went on excursions and wasn't seen for days. He would come back with injuries, porcupine quills in his nose, sore paws, flesh wounds from encounters with, possibly, raccoons. Once, a scattering of birdshot pellets from a trespassing hunter. Though he was a coward, he had no discretion. They'd also sprouted a number of cats, offspring of the single cat that had been transported to the farm from the city and was supposed to have been spayed. Obviously, there had been a mistake, because this cat kittened underneath a corner of the house. The kittens were quite wild. They ran away and plunged into their burrow if Nell even tried to get near them. Then they would peer out, hissing and trying to look ferocious. When they were older, they moved to the barn where they hunted mice and had secrets. Once in a while, a gizzard, squirrel, Nell suspected, or else a tail or some other chewed-up body part offering would appear on the back door threshold, where Nell would be sure to step on it, especially if her feet happened to be bare, as they often were in summer. The cats had a vestigial memory of civilization and its rituals, it seemed. They knew they were supposed to pay rent, but they were confused about the details. They ate out of the dog's dish, which was kept outside the back door. Howell didn't bark at them or chase them. They were too terrifying for him. Sometimes they slept on the cows. It was suspected they had dealings in the hen house. Eggshells had been found, but nothing could be proved. The white horse, the white mare, had a name unlike the cat's. Her name was Gladys. 
She had been installed with Tig and Nell because of Nell's friend Billy, who was a horse lover from childhood, but who lived in the city now, leaving her no outlets. Billy had seen the white horse or mare standing in a damp field all by herself, hanging her head disconsolately. She was in a sad condition. Her mane was tangled, her white coat was muddy, and her hooves had not been dealt with for so long that her toes were turned up at the ends like Turkish slippers. Any more time in that swamp, said Billy, and she'd develop foot rot, and once a horse had that, it would soon go lame, and that was pretty much game over. Billy had been so outraged by such callous neglect that she'd bought Gladys from a drunken and, she'd said, no doubt insane farmer, for a hundred dollars, which was a good deal more than poor Gladys was worth in her decrepit state. But then Billy'd had no place to put her. Nell and Tig had a place, however. They had lots of room, acres of it. What could be more perfect for Gladys, who was past her prime, who was too fat, who had something wrong with her wind so that she wheezed and coughed, than to come and stay at the farm? Just, of course, until something else could be found for her. How could Nell say no? She could have said she had enough to do without adding a horse to her long, long list. She could have said she wasn't running a retirement home for rejected quadrupeds. But she hadn't wanted to sound selfish and cruel. Also, Billy was quite tall and determined and had a convincing manner. I don't know anything about horses, Nell had said weakly. She didn't add that she was afraid of them. They were large and jumpy, and they rolled their eyes too much. She thought of them as unstable and prone to rages. Oh, it's easy. I'll teach you, said Billy. There's nothing to it, once you get the hang of it. You'll love Gladys. She has such a sweet nature. She's just a cupcake. When he heard about Gladys, Tig was reserved. He said that horses needed a lot of care. They also needed a lot of feed. But he'd accumulated all of the other animals, the ones that had been chosen and paid for, rather than just straying onto the property or being spawned on it or dumped on it. And Nell had had no say in those choices. She found herself defending the advent of Gladys as if she herself had made a deliberate and principled decision to take her in, even though she was already regretting her own slackness and lack of spine. Gladys arrived in a rented horse car and was backed out of it easily enough. Come on, you old sweetie pie, Billy said. There, isn't she gorgeous? Gladys turned around obediently and let herself be viewed. She had a round, thick body with legs that were too short for her bulk. She was part Welsh pit pony, part Arab, said Billy. That accounted for her odd shape. It also meant she would want to eat a lot. Welsh ponies were like that. Billy had made the trip in the horse car with her. She'd bought her a new bridle. Nell was expected to pay for this bridle, and also for the horse car rental. Gladys was now hers, it appeared. Surely that had not been the original understanding, but Billy thought it had been. She seemed to feel she was doing Nell a favor, had given her a priceless gift. She didn't charge for the original hundred dollars, nor for her own time. She'd taken a week off work to set Gladys up with Nell. She made a point of mentioning that. 
Gladys regarded Nell through her long, frowsy forelock. She had the weary, blank, but calculating look of a carnival con artist. She was sizing Nell up, figuring her out, estimating how to get round her. Then she ducked her head and snatched at a tuft of grass. None of that, you naughty girl, said Billy, jerking Gladys's head up by the bridle. You can't let them get away with anything, she told Nell. She led Gladys to the end of the drive shed where there was a fenced-in space originally intended for goats. Nell had fought off the goat idea and tied her up to one of the posts. We'll put her in here for now, she said. Billy volunteered to stay at the farm until Gladys was settled in, so Nell made up the recently acquired pull-out couch in the former back parlor. The previous summer, Nell and Tig had tried to incubate some eggs in there, turning them and sprinkling them with water as per the instructions in the booklet that came with the incubator. But something went wrong, and the chicks emerged with goggling eyes and swollen, blue-veined, unfinished stomachs and had to be hit with a shovel and buried in the back field. Howell dug them up again, several times, after which the cats got into them with unpleasant results. Nell kept finding tiny claws in unexpected places, as if the chicks were growing up through the barnyard dirt like disagreeable weeds. Nell had taken to keeping tomato plants under a grow light in the back parlor, but she'd moved them to the upstairs landing in preparation for Billy's week-long stay. Much had to be done for Gladys. Equipment was needed. Billy contributed some of her old horse things, a brush, a curry comb, a hoof pick, but the saddle had to be bought. It was second-hand, but still, thought Nell, breathtakingly expensive. You need the English, not the Western, Billy had said. That way you'll learn to be a real rider. What she meant, it turned out, was that with the English saddle, you had to grip with your knees or else you would fall off. Nell would rather have had the Western saddle. She had no interest in plummeting off a horse. But at least with Gladys, it wasn't very far down to the ground because of her stumpy little legs. Saddle soap had to be applied to the saddle and worked in. Metal items on the tackle had to be polished. A horse blanket was needed, too, and a crop and some old towels for rubbing Gladys down. Gladys would have to be rubbed down like a boxer after every session of exercise, said Billy, because horses were delicate creatures, and the number of diseases or conditions they could get was staggering. After the tackle had been brought up to scratch, Gladys herself had to be gone over, inch by inch. Nell did the work because she had to learn how, didn't she, with supervision by Billy. Dust and old hair came off Gladys in clouds. Long white horsehairs from her mane and tail detached themselves and floated onto Nell. Gladys bore all this patiently and might even have enjoyed it. Billy said she was enjoying it. She seemed to have a pipeline to Gladys's mind. She spent some time patiently explaining that mind to Nell, so Nell wouldn't do anything that might spook Gladys and cause her to panic and bolt. The hens were a potential danger. So was the laundry. Nell had strung a clothesline between two of the apple trees out at the front of the house, which was therefore a no-go zone. They hate flapping, Billy said. They see a different picture out of each eye, 
so they don't like surprises. Life comes at them from all sides. It's unsettling for them, you can imagine. A farrier was called in. Luckily, Billy knew one. And Gladys had her hooves trimmed and sparkling new horseshoes applied. She was looking friskier now. She was taking more of an interest. Her ears swiveled around at the sound of Nell, who always had a carrot with her or a sugar cube, this because of a hot tip from Billy. She has to bond with you, said Billy. Breathe into her nose. Then Nell had to try digging the stones out of Gladys's hooves. This needed to be done at least twice a day, said Billy, and also before riding Gladys and after riding Gladys, because you never knew when she might pick up a stone. Nell was afraid of being kicked, but Gladys didn't mind having her feet picked out. She knows it's for her own good, said Billy, whacking Gladys on the rump. Don't you, you big lump. Gladys was on a diet despite the carrots. Being thinner, Billy claimed, would help with the wheezing problems. It would be necessary to ride Gladys every day. She needed the exercise and also the excitement. Horses were easily bored, said Billy. At last, it was time to try Gladys out. The saddle was lifted onto her. The girths tightened. Gladys put her ears back and gave a crafty sideways look. Billy swung up into the saddle and kicked Gladys in the flanks, and Gladys cantered off down the road to the back field. They looked quite funny, top-heavy. Tall Billy astride fat Gladys, with Gladys's stumpy little legs whirring away underneath her like an egg-beater. After a while, Billy and Gladys came back. Gladys was wheezing, Billy pink in the face. She's been ridden by too many people, said Billy. She has a hard mouth. I bet she was used for kitty rides. What do you mean, said Nell. She has a whole bag full of tricks, said Billy. Bad habits. She'll try them out on you, so look out. Tricks? You just have to stay on said Billy grimly, dismounting. Once she knows you're on to her, she'll cut out the monkey business. You're a bad girl, she said to Gladys. Gladys coughed. Nell found out what the tricks were the first time she tried to ride Gladys. Billy ran alongside, shouting instructions. Don't let her get near the fence. She'll try to scrape you off. Keep her away from the trees. Don't let her stop. Give her a kick. Pull her head up. She's not allowed to eat that. Don't pay any attention to that cough. She's doing it on purpose. Though Gladys wasn't going very fast, Nell resisting the impulse to lean forward and clutch Gladys by the mane. She had a vision of Gladys rearing up on her two back legs, or else her two front legs, as in films, with the same result in either case, Nell shooting off into the bushes head first. But nothing like that happened. At the end of the track, Gladys halted, wheezing and panting, and Nell actually got her to turn around. Then, after Gladys had glanced back over her shoulder with an incredulous but resigned stare, they repeated their odd merry-go-round motion back to their starting point. Well done, said Billy. Good girl. The praise was for Gladys. See, you just have to be strict she said to Nell. When the week was over, Billy left in a sullen mood because Gladys had not been sufficiently grateful for having been rescued. 
She'd nipped Billy on the bum when having her head tied to a post as part of her diet procedure. Once Billy was no longer in the picture, Gladys and Nell came to an understanding. True, every time Nell approached with a bridle, Gladys would start wheezing. But once the saddle was on, she'd remember she might get a carrot at the end of her ordeal, and she would settle down, and off they would go down to the back field, always the same track. They avoided the gravel side road, neither of them liked trucks, and the front of the house as well because of the laundry. They didn't ride across the fields because of hidden groundhog holes. During these rides, Nell spent most of the time trying to make Gladys behave, and the rest of it letting her do what she wanted, because Nell was curious about what that might be. Sometimes Gladys wanted to stop in mid-canter to see if Nell would fall off. Sometimes she wanted to stand still, swishing her tail and sighing as if extremely tired. Sometimes she wanted to revolve slowly in a circle. Sometimes she wanted to eat weeds and wayside clover. Nell drew the line at that. Sometimes she wanted to go over to the barnyard fence and watch the sheep and cows, and also the cats which had taken to sleeping on her broad, comfortable back. Between the two of them, Nell and Gladys passed their riding time pleasantly enough. It was a conspiracy, a double impersonation. Nell pretending to be a person who was riding a horse, Gladys pretending to be a horse that was being ridden. Sometimes they didn't bother cantering or trotting. They ambled along in the sunlight, lazily and without purpose. At these times, Nell would talk to Gladys, which was better than talking to Howell, who was an idiot, or to the hens or cats. Gladys had to listen. She couldn't get away. What do you think, Gladys? Nell would say. Should I have a baby? Gladys, trudging along, sighing, would swivel an ear back in the direction of the voice. Tig isn't sure. He says he isn't ready. Should I just do it? Would he get angry? Would it ruin everything? What do you think? Gladys would cough. Nell would have preferred to have had this conversation with her mother, but her mother wasn't available. Anyway, she probably wouldn't have said much more than Gladys. She too would have coughed, because she would have disapproved. Nell and Tig were, after all, not married. How could they possibly be married when Tig couldn't manage to get himself divorced? But if Nell's mother knew about Gladys, maybe she would come up to the farm. Her mother had been a devoted horse person once, a long time ago. She'd had two horses of her own. Was it conceivable that, with Gladys dangled like a lure in front of her, she might overcome her reservations about Tig, about Nell, about their unorthodox living arrangements? Wouldn't she be tempted? Wouldn't she long to have one small, idyllic canter out to the backfield for old time's sake, with Gladys's pony-sized legs going like an egg-beater? Wouldn't she want to know that Nell now loved, improbably and at last, one of the same activities she herself had once loved? Perhaps, but Nell had no way of knowing. She and her mother weren't exactly speaking. They weren't exactly not speaking, either. The silence that had taken the place of speech between them had become its own form of speech. In this silence, language was held suspended. 
It contained many questions, though no definite answers. On the last Saturday in February, Nell took the Greyhound bus up to Stiles. It was already the afternoon. Tig and Una had... All right, well, that... that I actually messed up for you guys. I put in disc four, so we're going back to this one. So you get the end of the story and then the beginning. We're going to Star Wars it here. That's what we're doing at Mutiny Radio. We're Star Warsing it for you.
Random House Audio presents Moral Disorder by Margaret Atwood. Read for you by Susan Deniker. The Bad News It's morning. For now, night is over. It's time for the bad news. I think of the bad news as a huge bird with the wings of a crow and the face of my grade four schoolteacher, sparse bun, rancid teeth, wrinkly frown, pursed mouth and all, sailing around the world under cover of darkness, pleased to be the bearer of ill tidings, carrying a basket of rotten eggs, and knowing, as the sun comes up, exactly where to drop them. On me, for one. At our place, the bad news arrives in the form of the bad news paper. Tig carries it up the stairs. Tig's real name is Gilbert. It's impossible to explain nicknames to speakers of foreign languages. Not that I have to do this much. They just killed the leader of the interim governing council, Tig announces. It's not that he's impervious to bad news. On the contrary, he's angular he has less body fat than I do, and therefore less capacity to absorb, to cushion, to turn the calories of bad news, and it does have calories, it raises your blood pressure, into the substance of his own body. I can do that. He can't. He wants to pass the bad news on as soon as possible, get it off his hands like a hot potato. Bad news burns him. I'm still in bed, I'm not really awake. I was doing a little wallowing. I was enjoying this morning until now. Not before breakfast, I say. I do not add, you know I can't handle it this early in the day. I've added that before. It's had only an intermittent effect. After this long together, both of our heads are filled with such minor admonitions, helpful hints about the other person, likes and dislikes, preferences and taboos. Don't come up behind me like that when I'm reading. Don't use my kitchen knives. Don't just strew things. Each believes the other should respect this frequently reiterated set of how-to instructions, but they cancel each other out. If Tig must respect my need to wallow mindlessly, free of bad news, before the first cup of coffee, Shouldn't I respect his need to spew out catastrophe so he himself will be rid of it? Oh, sorry, he says. He shoots me a reproachful look. Why must I disappoint him like this? Don't I know that if he can't tell the bad news to me right now, some bilious green bad news gland or bladder inside him will burst and he'll get peritonitis of the soul? Then I'll be sorry. He's right. I would be sorry. I'd have no one left whose mind I can read. I'm getting up now, I say, hoping I sound comforting. I'll be right down. Now and right down don't have the same meaning they used to have. Everything takes longer than it did back then. But I can still get through the routine, out of the nightdress, into the daydress, the doing up of the shoes, the lubrication of the face, the selection of the vitamin pills. The leader, I think. The interim governing council. Killed by them. A year from now, I won't remember which leader, which interim governing council, which them. 
But such items multiply. Everything is interim. No one can govern anymore. And there are lots of them. Of thems. They always want to kill the leaders. With the best of intentions, or so they claim. The leaders have the best of intentions as well. The leaders stand in the spotlight. The killers aim from the dark. It's easy to score. As for the other leaders, the leaders of the leading countries, as they're called, those aren't really leading anymore. They're flailing around. You can see it in their eyes, white-rimmed like the eyes of panic-stricken cattle. You can't lead if no one will follow. People throw up their hands, then sit on them. They just want to get on with their lives. The leaders keep saying, We need strong leadership. Then they sneak off to peek at their poll ratings. It's the bad news. There's too much of it. They can't take it. But there's been bad news before, and we got through it. That's what people say about things that happened before they were born or while they were still thumb-sucking. I love this formulation. We got through it. It means dick shit when it's about any event you personally weren't there for, as if you'd joined some we club pinned on some tacky plastic we badge to qualify. Still, we got through it. That's bracing. It conjures up a march or a procession, horses prancing, costumes tattered and muddied because of the siege or battle or enemy occupation or butchering of dragons or 40-year trek through the wilderness. There'd be a bearded leader hoisting his standard and pointing forward. The leader would have got the bad news early. He'd got it. He'd understood it. He'd known what to do. Attack from the flank. Go for the throat. Get the hell out of Egypt. That sort of thing. Where are you? Tig calls up the stairs. Coffee's ready. I'm here, I call back down. We use this a lot, this walkie-talkie of air. Communication hasn't failed us. Not yet. Not yet is aspirated like the H in honor. It's the silent not yet. We don't say it out loud. These are the tenses that define us now. Past tense back then, future tense not yet. We live in the small window between them, the space we've only recently come to think of as still. And really, it's no smaller than anyone else's window. True, there are little things going wrong with us, a knee here, an eye there. But so far, just little things. We can still enjoy ourselves as long as we focus on doing one item at a time. I can remember when I used to tease our daughter back then when she was an adolescent. I'd do it by pretending to be old. I'd bump into walls, drop cutlery, fake memory loss. Then we'd both laugh. It's no longer such a joke. Our now-dead cat, Drumlin, developed cat senility when she was 17. Drumlin... Why did we call her that? The other cat, the one that died first, was Moraine. Once we thought it was amusing to name our cats after glacial dump geological features, though the point of it escapes me now. Tig said that Drumlin ought to have been named Landfill Site, but he was the one whose job it was to empty her litter box. It's not likely we will have another cat. I used to think, 
I thought this quite calmly, that after Tig was gone, for men die first, don't they, I might get a cat again for company. I no longer consider this an option. I'll surely be half blind by then, and a cat might run between my legs and I'd trip over it and break my neck. Poor Drumlin used to prowl the house at night, yowling in an unearthly fashion. Nothing gave her solace. She was looking for something she'd lost, though she didn't know what it was. Her mind, in point of fact, if cats can be said to have minds. In the mornings, we'd find small bites taken out of tomatoes, of pears. She'd forgotten she was a carnivore. She'd forgotten what it was she was supposed to eat. This has become my picture of my future self, wandering the house in the darkness, in my white nightdress, howling for what I can't quite remember I've lost. It's unbearable. I wake up in the night and reach out to make sure Tig is still there, still breathing. So far, so good. The kitchen, when I get to it, smells like toast and coffee. Not surprising, because that's what Tig has been making. The smell wraps around me like a blanket, stays there while I eat the actual toast and drink the actual coffee. There on the table is the bad news. The refrigerator's been making a noise, I say. We don't pay enough attention to our appliances. Neither of us do. Stuck onto the refrigerator is a photo of our daughter taken several years ago. It beams down on us like the light from a receding star. She's busy with her own life elsewhere. Look at the paper, says Tig. There are pictures. Is bad news worse with pictures? I think so. Pictures make you look whether you want to or not. There's the burnt-out car, one of a series by now, with its skeletal frame of twisted metal. A charred shadow crouches inside. In pictures like these, there are always empty shoes. It's the shoes that get to me. Sad, that innocent daily task, putting your shoes on your feet in the firm belief that you'll be going somewhere. We don't like bad news, but we need it. We need to know about it in case it's coming our way. Herd of deer in the meadow, heads down, grazing peacefully, then woof, woof, wild dogs in the woods, heads up, ears forward, prepare to flee. Or the muskox defense. Wolves approaching is the news. Quick, into a circle. Females and young to the center. Snort and paw the ground. Prepare to horn the enemy. They won't stop, says Tig. It's a mess, I say. I wonder where the security was. When God was handing out the brains, they used to say back then, some folks we could name were last in line. If someone really wants to kill you, they'll kill you, Tig says. He's a fatalist that way. I disagree, and we spend a pleasant quarter of an hour calling up our dead witnesses. He submits Archduke Ferdinand and John Kennedy. I offer Queen Victoria eight failed attempts, and Joseph Stalin, who managed to avoid assassination by doing it wholesale himself. Once this might have been an argument... Now it's a pastime, like gin rummy. We're lucky, says Tig. 
I know what he means. He means the two of us sitting here in the kitchen still. Neither of us gone. Not yet. Yes, we are, I say. Watch the toast. It's burning. There. We've dealt with the bad news. We've faced it head on, and we're all right. We have no wounds. No blood pours out of us. We aren't scorched. We have all of our shoes. The sun is shining. The birds are singing. There's no reason not to feel pretty good. The bad news comes from so far away most of the time. The explosions, the oil spills, the genocides, the famines, all of that. There will be other news later. There always is. We'll worry about it when it comes.